Greetings and salutations, and welcome to This Ends at Prom. A coming-of-age podcast highlighting cinema about or marketed towards teen girls. I'm one of your hosts, BJ Colangelo, and I'm joined by my wife. Harmony Colangelo, a trans woman who grew up watching none of these movies. Is today's movie a queen bee? Or are we killing the teen dream? Get in, loser. We're analyzing the movies people make fun of us for loving. Twice as hard for the same motherfucking title, but I realize that I probably won't be so lucky. Welcome back, prom party. Hello. I hope you are doing well today, Harmony, on the other side of the apartment. Oh, I'm cool. Um, We were having a conversation before we started recording, and BJ's like, we should talk about this on mic. (laughs) It was me calling her handsome because she was manspreading on the couch wearing no pants, some slides, and a shirt that just says, let's eat. Listen, you knew who I was when uh, you married me. This is something that you signed up for. Oh, I'm not complaining. Like... The the forewarning I got was like, hey, you ever see a John Water movie? Uh, I'm going to be Edith Massey. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's the future you're looking into. I'm fine with that. All right, good. I'm glad. <laughs> so we are talking about a very fun movie this week, and this finally allows me the chance to clarify a joke I made probably two years ago. Uh, two years ago we covered a movie that was either the same year or the same style as The Legend of Billie Jean. And people kept saying, why aren't you doing it? Why aren't you doing it? And I made a joke. I was like, oh, you know, I want to get someone who's like really sporty to talk about it. Because at that point, Harmony had no idea what this movie was about and made like a joke. Oh, I saw the the short haircut. Is it like motocross? Is it like a sporty movie? And I lied to her because I wanted to keep her in the dark as much as possible about what this actual this movie's actually about. So now anybody who's been waiting for the follow-up of that joke I made two years ago that no one but me remembers, uh, we're we're gonna do that today because Harmony now knows what the legend of Billie Jean is all about because we are talking about it you know it's really specific you mentioned that i don't remember the, calling this sporty at all I've, I've seen vh1 i love the 80s i had the vaguest idea to know <laughs> that this isn't a sports movie well you know what uh it was the motocross connection that i got it in my head that you thought this was a sports movie and right. i was just gonna let you believe that until we finally talked about it and you know okay. what we're talking about it now but cool. friends We are not alone today. We actually have a guest. Joining us today is comedian, film writer, one of my writers over at Slash Film, the host of Bill and Ashley's Terror Theater, our friend, and hopefully now yours, Mr. Bill Bria. Hi, Bill. Hi. Uh, If you like, you can call me Sporty Spice. Oh, okay. I mean, (laughs) is that what you want? We will respect that decision. Uh, you'd be the only ones that called me that, so go ahead. It'll be great. <laughs> so, Bill, I'll just see if I can sorry. make that happen. Sporty Spice. Um, Thank you. <laughs> why Legend of Billie Jean, of all the movies that you could have talked about with us, why this one? 
because you took all the others, you all. You, <laughs> you geniuses, you. You've been doing this long enough that you've hit the bases. Uh, no, really, it's because this is a movie that I've come to relatively late. Uh, this was not something that was part of my childhood. It wasn't even something I'd heard of until probably existing as a person on the internet because I'd seen it bandied about in a couple social circles about, oh, I love this movie, this movie, this movie. Um, and I'd heard the Pat Benatar song on the radio, of course, because it freaking jams. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't believe I re really knew of this movie's existence until probably like 10 years ago. And it was because I was waiting and waiting and waiting for a decent release of uh, another Matthew Robbins film, Dragon Slayer, to come out before I dived into his filmography, which is fairly brief, uh, as a director anyway. And uh, I thought, well, let me go through his stuff. And then I realized, oh, he directed Legend of Billie Jean. I'll finally see that movie, finally, because it's been on my list forever. And uh, so I saw it for the first time just last year. And it kind of blew me away in the sense that I wasn't prepared for how uh, in-depth it is as a nuanced discussion of... Uh, the influence of you know teens and teen culture, and also you know the feminist angle uh, with you know relationship of of women to society and how you know they're co opted as an image, and then all this other stuff involving uh, the idea of revolution <laughs> and young people. So uh, there's a lot to talk about, and uh, I just wanted to talk about this movie because there's so much to discuss. Beautiful, and so Harmony, you did kind of mention you knew about this movie probably like tangentially from watching Isle of the 80s on VH1. So what did you know about this movie? Uh, I know what Billie Jean looks like when she cuts her hair because like she looks because so cool. Because of course. She looks so cool. And also if you look this movie up, the uh, first thing Google recommends is like, hey, do you want to watch Just One of the Guys, another movie where a woman cuts all her hair off? <laughs> I'm, I'm sensing a pattern with people who like these movies together. huh? Um, but you know, I actually scrubbed through several uh, hours of VHS rips of I Love the 80s to find the clip where they talk about Legend of Billie Jean. It wasn't until their third go around they got to this one, unsurprisingly. But uh, it was mostly just people being like, yeah, like, I don't know, Scooter or something? Like $600? I don't know. They, they did, No one seemed passionate about talking about this movie and didn't seem to know much about it outside of Fair is Fair, except for Will Wheaton, who was really on board. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That's awesome. That kind of tracks for Will Wheaton, though. Like, somebody who's absolutely going to champion, like, the underdog film. That that seems like his brand. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, That's definitely. a really good point. I like, that. I like that phrase, underdog film. I like that a lot. Oh, totally. Oh, definitely. So, uh, so, BJ, what about you? All right. So, as is the case with most of the films that we cover, I watched this movie quite young. Um, I really, really liked this movie a lot. But because I saw this so young a lot of things were lost on me. Um, for me, I was like, oh, this is just a cool movie about a girl with a cool haircut on the lamb. She's got to, you know, change up her identity and people are supporting her. She's doing the right thing, standing up for, you know, what she believes in. That's cool. I like that. And then in college, I was asked to speak at a Take Back the Night rally because this was when I was very much in my like your friendly neighborhood rape survivor uh, mode where I did a lot of public speaking engagements. So I spoke at my campus's take back the night ceremony, um, told a really sad ass story that made a bunch of people cry and got put in a newspaper. And I was like, Hey guys, maybe don't 
put my name in this with what I talked about at this thing in a newspaper because I really don't need that Googled next to my name forever. That kind of strips me of my autonomy, you weirdos. Uh, and luckily, Not a they lot of foresight <laughs> on that one. Huh? <laughs> right. I was like, what were you thinking? Um, but luckily, they did take it down. But during that uh, moment, uh, somebody who was also in the uh, like in the theater program with me was asked to sing the Pat Benatar song um, from Legend of Billie Jean as like the closing moment, like kind of like a very like huzzah, like positive note before we took to the streets and did like the the, the march. And so I spoke with her a lot uh, as we were leading up to this event or whatever. And I was like, okay, so obviously you like Invincible, like you like Pat Benatar. And she was like, yeah, but I love the legend of Billie Jean. And we were talking about it and I was like, yeah, you know, I really love that movie. I thought it was really cool. And she's like, well, yeah, but it's also a super accessible, you know, it's a, it's a rape prevention without a rape scene in it. And like that, I think like my own like 12, 13 year old baby brain, like locked that part out. I was like, I'm sorry. What did you say? She's like, yeah. When's the last time you watched this? So then I went back, like after everything was said and done, I went to family video, which shockingly had a copy of it, rented it and called her the next day and I was like well I'll be damned you're right this is a well, whole I'll be damned <laughs> I was like this is a whole side plot of this movie that I just either didn't process or maybe due to my own trauma like completely blocked out because I wasn't ready to remember that kind of stuff yet but uh yeah I was like okay well this movie just like shot up the list of one of my all-time favorites because I loved it before but now I really love this movie yeah. Yeah. So that's 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 my history. And I mean, we kind of said a, a bunch of things that if people have not seen this movie, they're like, what the hell are you talking about? Um, so, Bill, if you had to explain what The Legend of Billie Jean is about to someone who's never seen it before, what is this movie? I would probably say it's um, it's definitely a teen adventure movie uh, about uh, this young woman, Billie Jean, who uh, through a series of unfortunate kind of Rube Goldbergian circumstances uh, becomes an outlaw uh, and then becomes a folk hero and then has to try and reconcile her own identity with this identity that's been created for her by the larger public, the larger media, and trying to find out where the truth is and also where justice is because her quest really throughout this movie i see it as a quest for justice fair is fair was the original title as well as the kind of unofficial slogan uh for the character and the movie and it's that it's that feeling of you know as a young person you see the world a certain way of okay here's black here's white there's nuance in between and yet there's still a black and a white side of like good and bad you know right and wrong and you know, part of coming of age, you know, I, you know, that, that phrase uh, is realizing there's all these different shades of gray in between. And how do you reconcile that if being a person in the world? How do you continue to move forward if you know that there can be no squaring of the circle? And uh, this is a movie that attempts to, you know, put that discussion in your face uh, and, and really not come up with the easiest of answers, but still make it entertaining, still make it very um, youth oriented, still make it very fun. This is a fun movie. It's not, you know, a dour you know, sort of uh, talky, even, you know, even though it gets soapboxy, it's still not something that's like, um, you know, uh, not cognizant of the fact that this was marketed to a younger audience and it's very MTV fueled, I feel. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's got a lot going for it. And I think that 
ultimately, like you were saying, BJ, your first watch is probably going to be, oh, what a fun movie with a lot of, you know, interesting elements. And then, you know, subsequent rewatches, even just this next rewatch I just did myself, you know, I was like, wow, there's so much more that I forgot about that you can talk about. So, yeah. Definitely. And this movie came out in 1985 and it wasn't super well received. Uh, it didn't make a whole lot of money. This kind of was an under the radar hit. The people who loved it really loved it, but the general public wasn't super keen on it. Um, there was a review that Janet Maslin did in 1985 for the New York Times where she said the legend of Billie Jean is competently made, sometimes attractively acted, particularly by Peter Coyote. Uh, fans of the show, you will know that that is Mandy Moore's dad in um, A Walk to Remember. Um, as the stern but evidently inept policeman who somehow can't catch these high-profile renegades and bankrupt beyond belief, it is hard to imagine that even the film's makers, let alone audiences, can believe in a sweet, selfless heroine who just can't help becoming a superstar. Absolute shade, Janet Maslin. Um, it's very easy to believe that story. You are out of your depth here. Uh, but Harmony, what context do you want to bring to the table for this movie? Right. So this comes out in 1985, a year that we have spent shockingly little amount of time in, despite it being smack dab right in the middle of the 80s and the rising MTV generation. Our alum from this year consists of the aforementioned Just One of the Guys, Heaven Help Us, Once Bitten, and The Breakfast Club. Oh, Three of those have a very oh, strong one. boy element to them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, at least Breakfast Club meets in the middle. Yes, yes, yes. So what's fun about this movie is I spent a lot of time trying to unpack why it was received badly, why it didn't perform well at the time. Because 85 is really when video rental starts to take off. So if you don't see this in the theater, you're probably not going to see it for a little bit until it'll eventually be one of those movies that probably gets a lot of circulation on like HBO and Showtime because it didn't cost very much for them to license it. But from what I could tell from critics, they mostly thought the plot was a lot of, uh, it was too much suspension of disbelief. They were like, yeah, who could really believe any of this would ever happen? Who could believe that all of this would happen exactly this way? I can't buy into that. And yet the Goonies came out like this year or whatever, and they're going to be like, oh yeah, you, know, you get chased through underground caves with pirates and Italians. That's <laughs> believable for the boys on their adventures. <laughs> Um, but more importantly, I was trying to be like, why didn't it make money? Because like this is when teen movies should make money. Um, it finished fourth from the bottom for the month it came out, uh, 24 out of 27. And I think it just got crowded out because like the trailer's good. It's got the backing of Pat Benatar. It's got everything working for it. But also this month you have to deal with National Lampoon's European Vacation, The Goonies, uh, a re-release of E.T., St. Elmo's Fire, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, Rambo First Blood Part 2, Cocoon, Pale Rider, and Back to the Fucking Future. Oh, yeah, you're fucked. <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah, you're done. You're not making if, money that month. Uh, I wonder if the crowd for St. Elmo's was kind of stealing seats from Billie Jean. I wonder if that probably. was maybe the Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And because I think there's probably one big teen release allowed in one chunk, and that one gets a lot of it. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I think so, definitely. Because the St. Elmo's Fire also has a lot of like the Brat Packy kind of stuff going for it yet. And mm-hmm. this is three years before Heather's. This is three years before, even though that movie also didn't perform well, but this is before Christian Slater becomes Christian Slater. Um, yeah. So, th- And it's just crazy because this is one of the most quintessential Christian Slaters of Christian Slater. I mean, it's so nascent Christian Slater, you couldn't get more, you know, what's a Christian Slater role? Like, this is definitely one of his roles. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So, it's, yeah. And I wonder if perhaps, I mean, it's unfortunate to say because I love it, but I know it's a true fact that Supergirl did not do well uh, very famously. So mm-hmm. since mm-hmm. Helen Slater was our star, I didn't know if maybe that was part of it at the box office, too, where it's like, oh, the Supergirl lady? Oh, uh, you know, we don't want to see yeah. that. Yeah. She might have been seen as, like, some sort of tainted goods by the general public. Um, also, like, just thinking about it contemporaries, like, this is a few years after, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains, which is also regarded as like mm. very ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that might also just be a problem for it. Yeah, I, I think so. And it makes sense to me that this is a movie that is, has been reclaimed and beloved by people who weren't around to see it when it first came out. I think that it fulfills a very similar niche of films like Heather's, like Josie and the Pussycats, where it came out and people didn't get it. And the people who really liked it were kind of splintered all across the country, all across you know age ranges. But now because we have the internet, we can all join forces together and go, no, 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 this movie fucking rules mm-hmm. and kind of take that, the control of that narrative back because you know criticism while one of the most important you know areas of art it just is because you know (laughs) it just is it's a thing that I do it's a thing I feel very passionately about but it is an imperfect science Um, it's impossible not to be influenced by your own implicit biases it is impossible to not be influenced by your own personal tastes I know we talk about it all the time about how Roger Ebert is hailed as you know one of the you know if there's a Mount Rushmore of critics Roger Ebert's obviously on it um, and famously hated horror movies and you know that's not that, that doesn't mean that horror movies are suddenly devoid of value because Roger Ebert doesn't like them, nor does it mean that he's a bad critic because he doesn't like horror. Like, people have the things that they like. But when we're talking about films like Legend of Billie Jean, ones that have a very specific lens, context of when they came out and who was in charge of the critical space at the time is very important because as much as I love and respect people like Pauline Kael and like Janet Maslin, they are also still, you know, the handful of women in a male-dominated society. And there is a little bit of that, like, hashtag not like most girls energy that a lot of them had to hold on to to be respected by their male peers. Like, that's a reality of the situation that a lot of us never want to address because it feels icky and it feels like we're adding an asterisk to their input. So when I see something like Janet saying, like, I don't believe that this would ever happen, I'm not trying to look at her and be like, you're a traitor to the cause, or like, how could you say this? Because I also understand, like, yeah, you got bills to pay. You've got a reputation to protect. You probably have to include a little bit more of that like standard cultural thought process um, of what everyone else is saying, because then otherwise it becomes like, well, of course you liked it, Janet. And, you know, you don't want to have that. So it again, it's an imperfect science. So even when you look at what critics at the time were saying, that context is also important in looking at it, which is Something I recommend everybody do whenever you read any review from a movie from the 2000s. 
Yeah. I mean, also, I would I would add to it that I think it wasn't until our generation where we started to have a certain level of, uh, I don't know, like we were willing to hold on to the spirit of our teen years in a different way than everyone else did. Like in a, in a not uh, American graffiti animal house diner type way that dudes have been holding on to the spirit of their youth. I think that we're willing to place ourselves there and maintain that in a way that people were not at the time, because this is like such a very youthful movie in ideals, in execution. Like this is kind of baby's first exploitation movie. Uh, And I think that there's something about particularly like Gen X and millennials willing to be like, no, but I, I like the feeling of being like 13 and stick, sticking it to the man. And we hold that into our adult years in a very different way than past generations did. That's a really good point. I also wondered, as we're discussing this, if, as you were saying, BJ, about the critical establishment at the time, especially around the 80s, you know, I feel from my looks back at both the output of the 1980s as well as how the critics of that time, the contemporary critics, were reacting to those films, I definitely see a huge pushback against a lot of mainstream American films of that era because of this perceived um, and they're not wrong necessarily, but this perceived commercialism uh, that's happening at this during this decade of mm-hmm. let's sell, let's sell, let's sell, as opposed to what they were coming out of, uh, presumably, especially people like Ebert, uh, of the new Hollywood era where you had a lot of these maverick artists who were hijacking major studios to make these very personal, heartfelt, like kind of bleak projects that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily see a studio make, you know, then or now. And when the 80s kind of had this snapback effect of like okay we're going the needle's going all the way back to you know we're making big budget genre you know fair exploitation as you said harmony uh and i'm sure that you know people were inundated with uh if there was any tv advertising for this movie it was like you know the single from pat benatar you know check it out on chrysalis records or whatever you know i'm and there's definitely watching this again i i noticed that i personally feel again this is just me as a interpretive critic uh you know, brain, but I, I feel that Robbins, the director, uh, was definitely attempting to make this a little bit more appealing, a little bit more commercial after the failure of Dragon Slayer, because that was kind of his big bid uh, with Disney and Paramount to make, you know, a big hit at the box office, and it really didn't hit. And so I wonder if there was a little bit of um, kind of wounded uh, uh, response to that of like, okay, well, let me put in a bunch of pop tracks, a bunch of, you know, needle drops and hopefully sell a soundtrack, which never got officially released, which is insane to me. And that sucks because the soundtrack rules. Like it's got early it's so divinals. Good. Early divinals kick so much ass. It's got Wendy O. Williams and granted it's Wendy O. Williams during the like I'm being produced by Kiss version, which is still good, but definitely not yeah. as like hardcore as her early stuff. And then obviously like Pat Benatar at like the peak of her powers. And was Rebel Yell already a hit when this came out? I yes. actually don't know the date on that. Okay, yeah. It is. And also it's like slightly sped up in the movie to fit the tempo of the scene. And it <laughs> kind of, I'm kind of like, okay, listen, Billy Billy Idol's vocals are sped up a little and it sounds a tiny, a tiny bit weird, but I'm willing to let it have a pass. But why wasn't this song at that tempo normally? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it does. It's like when you hear something on TikTok today and you're like, oh, that sounds great. And you listen to the original version. You're like, why is it slower? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I think that like, especially like with TikTok, um, I think there was a term for it. It was like it was called like chipmunk rap or whatever, where people were just taking samples and speeding them up like that for uh, for like a solid decade on and off. Oh, yeah. And now we're just doing it again as like, you know, an accompanying sound bit. (laughs) 
the crazy frogification of rap music. Um, yes. <laughs> definitely a thing. And glad, I, I hope we leave that in the past, but I have a feeling it's going to make a comeback. But before we get in any deeper, it is time for everyone's favorite part of the show. Happy New Year, prom party. Over on the Patreon this month, we got uh, we got some fun stuff and some changes for you. For our Sadie Hawkins dance episodes, we're talking about John Cusack's Better Off Dead because there's a skiing plot for some reason in this movie. We're also talking about Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. I remember that movie being funny, but I was also in high school the last time I saw it. We'll see how that works. Instead of the musical milestones this month, we're actually changing things up a little bit. We had so much fun discussing You Were My First Boyfriend that uh, we're actually going to to take a little detour for the $1 tier over there, and we're going to talk about some documentaries for a bit. This month's is called The Bad Kids, and BJ assures me that it is quite stellar, so I look forward to that. And as we're finished with My So-Called Life, we're starting a new TV homecoming, and uh, I'm, I'm sure you all are appalled and excited that we are going to spend the next few months going through the first season of Daria because I have never seen it. And I'm, I'm sorry for that, but I'm very excited about this experience. In addition to all of these fun things, subscribing to the Patreon also gets you access to the back catalog, our monthly playlist, and the suggestion box. It might be a new year, but it's the same old story as always. If you're unable to support the podcast for any reason, we just appreciate you listening and sharing us with a friend and rating us if you haven't. Uh, and leaving any comments you want on on Spotify, because you can do that. Thank you so much. And now back to the movie. Alrighty. So we obviously have to kick things off with the titular role and talk about Billie Jean, played by Helen Slater. Bill, how do you feel about Billie Jean as a character? I think she's... I'm really enamored with Helen Slater in general as an actress, but also her performance here because it's a tough role as, you know, Maslin was alluding to. If you do it wrong, you know, you can become too idealized or a too much of a, a, a non-entity in, you know, a movie that really needs this character to be charismatic or at least uh, forthright enough to create this sensation. And, Really, you know, there's there's a bit of I guess I would say this is almost a Capra esque character in her uh, integrity and forthrightness because really, you know, her entire role or or goal during this entire film is just fair is fair. That's her, you know, spine. That's her ethos, and she's of course not looking to become a folk hero. She's not looking to become a superhero. She's not, you know, someone who kind of takes it upon herself to right the wrongs of the world. She's just a small town, you know trailer park girl who just wants you know her family to be okay she's you know supportive of her mother as she's dating and she's supportive of her brother even though he's you know kind of flying off the handle in a christian slater way uh and she's in through just acting in a way that's very uh forthcoming and honest and fair she's coming up against these people in the world who are none of that they're corrupt they're misguided they're uh, bureaucratic, you know, they're people that, you know, do not have this honest integrity that she has. And so I think what's fun is that, you know, she learns throughout the course of the movie to stay true to herself, but also co-opt her 
natural ability of honesty of integrity to her advantage uh hence you know creating the whole billy jean persona uh you know slightly adapted from joan of arc uh by seeing uh that movie the gene Sirberg one right i believe mm -hmm. and um and so i think that yeah i think that that billy jean in this movie is someone who seems believably to me just that next door trailer park girl who through being a genuine person you know is kind of elevated into this you know lofty position of uh folk hero harmony how about you well, Bill is so much more eloquent than me, but that's okay. <laughs> I would my one of my first instincts is she's like, cool. I mean, she is though. Like that's really what it comes down to is like she's so cool. Like when she cuts her hair off, I'm like, man, that's this is really what uh, Katy Perry was going for when she decided to try to have like purposeful music in her life, where she's like, oh my God, I'm gonna cut so right. all of it off. I'm gonna be Billie Jean. I'm gonna be Joan of Arc. I'm gonna be so cool. <laughs> and it didn't work out well for her. Um, I will say something that is interesting about this movie is uh, you could you could you could certainly make commentary of the fact that uh, her accent's way thicker at the start of the movie, and once she becomes a figurehead, she stops having such a thick uh, Southern accent, and maybe America just doesn't respect the South or their accents very much, and wouldn't accept a hero with that kind of twang. Uh -huh. um, but no, like she's she's so cool, and like she's subtle. Like that's what it really comes down to. Is it's like you can. You can have these movies, um, one of the ones that everyone always makes fun of, and you know unjustly so, is like Black Christmas 2019, where the message of the movie is more important than the movie itself, and that's because it's handling larger topics than just like a film, and it's putting that at the forefront. You could easily say that this movie is doing that as well, um, but specifically with the Billie Jean character, there's a lot of subtlety because like she doesn't talk nearly as much as you think she's going to. Like she's she she says things when she has something to say, which almost makes it feel like a Western where like you don't waste words. Um, yeah, no, her actions speak louder than words. Like she 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 gets a whole band of children together to go storm a drunken piece of shit hick dad who's being a DJ and smacking his son around and just walks in and he's like, wow, Billy Jean, I don't want no trouble. Do you want some food? <laughs> um, like the power of her and the fact that she doesn't really even have to say like anything like that's we, we talked about this a little bit like when we did um, Spirited Away a couple weeks ago about how America just doesn't have good folk heroes and I think we're also just like hungry for someone like that we want to believe in like the inherent good of like a figurehead like this during this era like that was Hulk Hogan and we know Hulk Hogan's a piece of shit now <laughs> but like he he was all we wanted is like an American hero who says your prayers and eats your vitamins and he's going to be all good encompassed and he wasn't. Um, can we can we maybe substitute Mr. T for Hulk Hogan? I feel like, you know, Mr. T was going that way, too, with his cereal and his oh, uh, yeah. specials and. <laughs> those uh those his his uh the ones that got memed a bunch where it was like Mr. Yes. T giving like safety yes. advice. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know enough about Mr. T as a person, but he is certainly better than Hulk Hogan. I was going to say, you know, there's there's a low bar. Yeah, that bar's in hell. God. Yeah. I mean, so, honestly, the real answer is probably Sonic the Hedgehog. Like we're we're a few years removed from Sonic. Sonic is real. <laughs> um, Sonic gives great advice. Those PSAs are important, or you know, I guess GI Joe. We can go the same if route. If someone's touching you where you don't want to be touched, that's no good. <laughs> Classic Sonic. Oh, so ridiculous. Um, 
So on the topic, though, of the hair, there are a couple things that I want to bring up that I think are really interesting. So one, Helen Slater really did cut her hair. That is a real thing. Yeah. No um, kidding. The, there are actually <laughs> moments at the beginning of the film where they had to do reshoots where she is very noticeably wearing a wig. Um, but luckily, there's a lot of movement going on. So if you're not looking for it, it's a little for bit. What it's worth, I didn't notice. I was going to say, kind of brave of production to be like, we're going to have our lead cut their hair in halfway through the movie. So, yeah. you know, it's always impressive to do that. Yeah. Um, but they originally did want her to have the Joan of Arc hair, which is a lot closer to what I would say is like uh, Rosemary's Baby, Mia Farrow, like hair. It's a lot closer to Eurythmics that. Eurythmics of mm-hmm. the era, you know? Yeah. Andy it's, Lennox. It's much shorter. And what I find really funny is that uh, this is going to be a, a deep cut for anybody who watched um, America's Next Top Model. But this is a thing that happened um, during a season of America's Next Top Model where they wanted to cut a girl's hair that was really long into like a Joan of Arc Mia Farrow cut and she was like absolutely not no way and then they were like fine you can have this longer blonde pixie and it is just the Billie Jean haircut um so Helen Slater didn't want to cut her hair that short so this was the compromise is this haircut they also wanted her to have like very vibrant like probably like Bowie-ish makeup and she was not down with that either which is why we get the long dangly earring and the wetsuit um because that was the compromise of still making her look very striking very cool but not like so intense I think if she Mm -hmm. would have done the makeup it would have really felt like fabulous stains because that it would have been a little much like this this is more subtle this is more punk this is more new wave i think this fits the zeitgeist better as like an approachable uh, as an approachable like we live in our car feasible look yes i agree with that completely um and if you listen to there's a, a commentary track on one of the releases where Helen Slater talks about how the person who was like the the onset stylist was a born again christian um and they had like a whole prayer ceremony before cutting her hair yeah. Um, wow. <laughs> which, you know, that is a thing. And like there are a lot of cultures that whenever there is like a big dramatic change in your life, um, a lot of indigenous cultures do this. Cutting your hair is a big part of it because it's, you know, you're cutting off part of you that has been growing out for a long period of time. You're getting rid of, you know, that it's a, it's a symbolic removal of that past so that you can have a fresh start. So there's a like there's so much power in hair cutting and just the what hair represents, especially for women in general. So I I get it. Like I really get I get why it was such a big deal for either this hairdresser or for her and for this character to cut off all of your hair. Like there's a joke now where it's like, oh, I'm stressed out. I'm gonna give myself bangs. Like that's become <laughs> memed at this point. But I absolutely do weird stuff with my hair whenever I'm having like you know, intense feelings of, you know, psychological distress or I need to feel like I'm in control of something in my life. I mess with my hair. So it makes total sense to me that Billie Jean is like, fuck it. It's all go. It's got to go. Also, I mean, Helen Slater was still coming off of, again, Supergirl. She was still a little had a little bit of heat on her as, you know, an art actor. And for actors, that's such a whammy because it's like, okay, if I do this drastic change to myself, I'm going to have to change all my headshots. I'm going to have to put these new ones out. I'm going to have to at least, you know, wait another six months before I have that full look again that I used to have. So, yeah, it becomes, uh, you know, a, a production issue or, or a job issue in that way. And also, I was asked to shave my head for a role back in college at one point. Uh, I used to act. And uh, I... <laughs> 
Well, I didn't because I hated the director and I didn't like this play. And I was in college. I was like, I'm not going to do this. But I also didn't know what the shape of my head looked like at that point. So I was like, what if there's a weird lump? I don't know. You know, so it's that fear, too. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we saw what this looks like in the 90s a little bit later on when uh, Robin Tunney cuts all of her hair off for Empire Records and then wears a horrible wig for all of the craft. Oh, that wig mm. is so bad. <laughs> it's so fucking ugly. And it yep. kills me because Robin Tunney has like, because you, you think Robin Tunney and Sino Man, she has like the biggest, most luscious, like voluminous hair. Oh my God. Yeah. It's what everyone thinks when they think of Robin Tunney. They think of Robin Tunney and Encino Man. Um, I do. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think of Robin Tunney and Supernova, but okay. <laughs> See, look, Bill also has a deeper cut. <laughs> Is that a boy or a girl? The young lambs crying through the frost. And the blessed church bells that send my voices to me on the wind. Girl, Joan of Arc. She dressed up as a man. All the French followed her to fight the English. But without these things. Did she win? Yeah. I cannot live. And no. Cheered voices. Stop being a peasant. Be a soldier. France needs you. Truth. Justice. And she won. She beat the English. And then. Then what? The French burned her. Alive! You know, she is on on the lamb, um, but this is also BJ and Co., um, which is how I'm just going to refer to all of my friend groups from now until forever. But BJ let's talk. And Co. Yeah, BJ and Co. Let's talk. That sounds like a lovely 1970s folk movie right there. BJ and Co. Yeah. It's BJ and Co. <laughs> They're going down the street. <laughs> I mean, it really does. Uh, but let's talk about some of these other characters that are joining. Um, the first one I want to talk about is a, a live action version of Yeardley Smith, which we don't get very often because once she becomes Lisa Simpson, that's kind of her life until now. Yeah, she's printing those checks at that point. So yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, let's talk about Putter. Uh, Bill, how do you feel about Putter? Putter is, uh, again, I, there's so many characters in this that... I wouldn't even say all the characters where uh, if you have it, you know, played wrongly or, or badly, they just look like the biggest cartoons. And Putter is the closest to potentially being a cartoon, which is kind of mm -hmm. great that you have an actress who was soon to go on to become one of the most iconic cartoons of all time uh, because she understands how to pitch that performance and keep her feeling grounded and yet really play those high notes of you know she's always got the the quip or the bon mot to end a lot she, she's the button of a lot of scenes you know with little like uh, non sequiturs of, of this and that and yet you know there's this very tender arc between her and, and billy jean and just her in general with regards to her relationship to billy jean and her friends and and what role she plays in the friend group and also what role she has at home uh because you know there's this Really, I mean, I think one of the most telling scenes in the movie, tonally, is when, uh, you know, they're uh, given up to the law, to Peter Coyote by Billie Jean. Um, and, you know, uh, she and, uh, oh, I forget the name of the friend, the, the driver. Oh, Ophelia. 
Ophelia, thank you. Oh, yes, uh, another very uh, literary name. Um, they're, you know, in jail, and then the parents come to, you know, collect them or see them, and, and uh, Putter's mom shows up, and we know from earlier that Putter's mom is abusive, and she slaps her right in full view of everyone, and Putter's response is not to say anything. She doesn't shout back at her mother. She doesn't launch into a monologue. She doesn't have another non sequitur to say. She grabs a pair of scissors from somewhere, some nearby and starts cutting her hair in a, this defiance act. And, you know, of course, it's symbolic, of course. And, you know, she ends up later with a Billie Jean style haircut, which is what a lot of other people in the town or, you know, can presume the country are doing because of Billie Jean's influence. And that moment, you know, if 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 the rest of the movie didn't support it, it would be like, why is she cutting her hair all of a sudden? That's ridiculous. And mm -hmm. I could see, you know, less, uh, less uh, nuanced audience members starting to laugh hysterically at that moment if they were not in with the movie's vibe. But I think that's the movie's vibe, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Like, you, you have to give in to, like, just kind of what this movie's doing. Um, otherwise, then you, you're like the talking heads on VH1 or, you know, critics who are just like, yeah, it's silly. Like, I don't. I like I just don't. I, it's too much suspension of disbelief. It's really convenient they broke into a house that's you know by a guy who knows who they are and is willing to help them out and happens to be like this famous guy's kid. Like that, that's mm -hmm. not what this movie's about. You you just need to go along for the ride. That's just it's it's a series of circumstances. That's how folk legends work. Um, but Yardley Smith in this movie, I love that during this era between this and Maximum Overdrive. What if we just give her like a really silly Southern accent? Yeah. <laughs> And one of the more impressive things to me is that because uh, she doesn't actually cut her hair, as we see in Maximum Overdrive when she still has very, very long hair, um, mm -hmm. that they were able to fit that underneath that little wig. That's very impressive because she got a lot of hair. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> my favorite scene with Putter, um, obviously the slap is probably the most memorable, but the sense of dread and humor in her voice when they're like, oh my God, Putter, you've been shot, you're bleeding. And she's like, no, it's not that. And you realize that she has her period for the first time. And they even comment like, wow, it's about time. So you, we know she's a late bloomer. Like the way she handles that scene is so masterful because that is, it's the fucking worst. Like of all the time to get your period for the first time, it's this, like this trip is when it finally happens. That sucks. But it is also like a beautiful kind of metaphor of like Putter's growing up. Like this is the the event in her life that is forcing her to grow up. And mm -hmm. I really like that because a lot of times cinematically speaking, the cinematic language of getting your period is usually really traumatic. Um, it can be empowering. It can be, hello, Carrie White, you have telekinesis and now you can kill all your haters. Like it can be good or it can be fucking awful. And it can be like, this is the worst thing that's ever going to happen to you. Surprise. Now you're a cannibal slash you're a werewolf slash whatever. Whereas this, it's like, you're an adult now, Putter. Like you can, you can talk back. You can stand up for yourself. You're not a little girl anymore. And I love that. I think that works really, really well. And it, it's presented beautifully. And I, yeah. I, and I also love because there are moments in these like you know road movies or you know whatever you want to call them where these sorts of like logical things never get brought up of like, how are they taking a shit? Like what how, are people showering? What's, what's the situation here? But the fact that they're willing to be like, yeah, no, you still get your period during this. And it fucking sucks. It's like an added layer that like 
dudes don't have to think about this. Like you don't have to worry mm-hmm. about where you're going to get a pad or a tampon or whatever, but like putter now does, that's a new thing they have to incorporate. And I love that. And, and the implication in the very next scene that they, you know, cleaned her off in the lake and you know, that, that was that sort of improvisation of like, we're on the run, but like, mm-hmm. here's this lake, let's just use it as our, whatever we need to use it as. And I was really impressed as you were kind of hinting at BJ with the ending of that scene, the revelation of getting her period wasn't, played for uh laughs you know it wasn't played as a another putter button of like oh here's how putter ends the scene in a kind of a humorous way you know they take it seriously and, and billy jean makes sure to say that oh it's wonderful it's not you know whatever binks is saying yeah bink says it's gross and she's basically like shut the fuck up it's great <laughs> you're mm-hmm. like yeah, i love yeah. that i mean that's not the exact line obviously but that's the subtext of what she says <laughs> <laughs> exactly which I this like. This movie does have a few fucks. Like they're all at the beginning of the movie. Like this movie fucks oh, yeah. a lot of language. I uh, think there were maybe supposed to be three, but they had to dub one yeah, later on because because they're referring to some people as fuckers, right? Yeah, yeah. probably. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really like that when we were watching this, like with where we wherever we rented it from, the subtitles were censored, but the movie wasn't. So like, there's certain things where it's just like that's clearly not what the like when he refers to his scooter as a fag mobile, that is absolutely not what the subtitle said. <laughs> Mm. No, I think it was it like was a, just a mobile. It was, it was like a, no, I think it had like an insult, but it was not fag. It was like something else. Like but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. You front, you, they front loaded this movie with a lot of language, and that's when I was saying, saying to BJ, I'm like, okay, but why is everything about this set up like an exploitation movie? And she goes, just mm-hmm. wait, <laughs> just wait. It's gonna, it's gonna get there. It's gonna get there. Um, so the other people that are on here, um, I do feel bad. Like Ophelia is kind of an afterthought of this group. Mm-hmm. Um, like she's there, she's there to like bounce ideas off of, but she's not a bold enough presence, um, to like really make as much of an impact to the fact that we had to think about what her name is, Yeah, um, yeah. which is, you know, that kind of happens in a lot of these movies, but let's, t- I do want to talk about Binks though. Um, Christian Slater is such a cute like baby brother in this and he's got such like little brother energy in this movie mm-hmm. and it's because he is actually 15 um so i i know the the rest of the cast they are older um playing younger so uh there's been some talks on like the commentary track where they're like we felt bad cuz we got to like all hang out and do things after shooting scenes and Christian Slater had to go to class um and Aww. do his homework while they were all like partying <laughs> It's it's so it's so funny and interesting how natural Christian Slater feels like on the lamb with a gun in his hand. Oh my god, it's a toy gun. I mean, you could just tell that this kid was going to go on to do more of that <laughs> in his career uh, because he just has this. Yeah, I know. Mean, I know that he got a lot of Jack Nicholson comparisons, especially during this time, or at least you know a few years later. When Certainly he during Heather's, yeah, Heather's and and True Romance, but. Uh, I, I mean, I get the sound comparison for sure. Like, his voice is very similar. And yet, his energy, it has this wiry, um, nervous, uh, but but yet kind of rebellious energy. I think the reason why he was in this, and I think what's so perfect for him to be in this, is that he just has a natural uh, rebel in him. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't seem to cotton to authority easily if just the way the tenor of his voice you know even in milder interviews if you'll see him you know the way he really is the way he really speaks there is just this weird quality about him that feels like he could you know tell you off if if you didn't if you didn't you know talk to him the right way that sort of thing he just has that innate kind of i'm gonna go my own way no matter what you say sort of idea Mm -hmm. to him and um and yeah binks is that obviously in, in a little brother energy 
Um, he's very excited to potentially become an outlaw. You know, he's very into the signing autographs uh, of, you know, the legend of the Billie Jean gang. Um, if anything, like, I feel like this, his character feels maybe the closest to what this would have been had it been a New World picture in the 70s, you know? Uh -huh. I, I can see him going into Boxcar Bertha. I can see him going to Big Bad Mama, you know, that sort of thing. Oh, definitely. And something that I think is really underappreciated about Christian Slater as a performer, especially during this era, is he has what I like to call like rubber band body, which is when you have <laughs> when you have a character that not only knows how to use their limbs in a way that's like he takes up space when he needs to, but also he's that guy who will crouch into his knees and wrap his arms around his knees and have a conversation with you and then jump out of it and be huge again and then go back to being like he makes a lot of weird shapes with his body. He's never sitting correctly in anything. Like he's just always doing something weird. He's like a human Tetris piece. And the, <laughs> there adds like such a frenetic energy to what he's doing, but it's also a very youthful energy. And mm -hmm. so then I think that adds a really nice ju juxtaposition with the kind of like very serious rebel voice that he just instinctively has. Like, I think people know, but if you don't know, like the show, like this show opens with me saying greetings and salutations. And like, it's me doing a Christian Slater. Like that's how he talks mm -hmm. in Heathers. Um, that's how he introduces himself. So seeing this character where you're getting a little bit of those little bits of the, the rebel we know he is, but also that he's, so committed to just using his body as an instrument as a performer this young like this is it's such a it's such a great performance for him he's wonderful mm -hmm. and even just like the juxtaposition between him and his sister in this movie where it's like she is more composed she has to be and he's like fuck it let's go like i'm gonna play <laughs> with this gun this is just playtime. yay <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like there's also something to that dynamic as well of the parentification that happens of older siblings, specifically older sisters. That is very much a thing. Even if you have both of your parents, there is this innate like once a woman hits a certain age, if she has a younger sibling, you also become responsible for them. You also have to parent them. And we see that happening while they're on the limb because she does feel like she's responsible for everybody. And there are moments where, yes, this is very much a sibling dynamic, but every once in a while, I mean, even with like the putter period scene, where it does become a parental role where it's like, shut up. And she's, yes, she's being mouthy because she's a sister, but she's also course correcting him. She's parenting him. Um, and I I like that this is an honest look of what that looks like where he gets the the space to be kind of a maniacal weirdo. And she kind of has to have her shit together. Yes, because she's the symbol of the revolution, of course, but also mm -hmm. because she's an older sister. And that is part of your, like, that is part of your role in the family dynamic. Yeah, she has to yeah. be like, hey, you dumb dumb, don't pull a gun on a cop. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the, the gun's fake, but he doesn't know that, stupid. <laughs> I also wanted to say that I, I personally feel now that I've you know seen all, everything but one, I, just, I still have yet to see Bingo, uh, the dog movie that he made. But uh, I think all of Matthew Robbins' movies are fairy tales after a fashion. And Binks' character is the one in this movie, maybe Putter too, but I think Binks a little bit more, who seems to be the one character that still believes in magic, 
in the world and mm-hmm. that magic is in the form of Vermont and <laughs> Vermont is this magical land that it snows and you know it in the same way that uh you know other characters in other films will fantasize about America or the big city or you know this thing that they have to go to to everything will be all right as soon as we get there um the green place in Mad Max Fury Road whatever it has mm-hmm. to, whatever whatever it is and uh so you know Binks's character of course he's in love with the legend of Billie Jean uh, literally and figuratively because you know that's the magic that's the thing that it's this elevated experience as Michael Mann likes to put it of uh, you know being alive and being in this world that you know there is kind of a still a sense of right and wrong and and Binks is in love with you know this idea that uh, this magic can still exist oh yeah like it's 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 pure it's like what you see with like you know a postcard at Christmas time where it's like oh look there's snow and it's pure white and it's the exact opposite of where I'm from. And you see that a lot with just people in, in LA where I like, I've talked to so many people who are like, I'm from Montana. I'm from Oklahoma. And my favorite place in LA is the Americana. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's like, I like this shopping district that feels a little bit like a small Hallmark town where I can go to Sephora <laughs> well, and I think there's also something to be said about the romanticization of snow um, when you're from a place that doesn't have it. Uh, you know, all three of us have lived places where there is snow. Um, mm-hmm. So we understand. So we know that, yes, sometimes you wake up and it does look like when Ralphie wakes up on Christmas morning and looks outside in a Christmas story and everything has a beautiful drapery of white and it is oh, lovely. A perfect kind of snow that sticks to branches and you go, oh, yeah. Yeah. We know that yes it does sometimes look like that but most of the time it's filth (laughs) most of the time (laughs) it is waking up at five in the morning and jamming a piece of plastic on your windshield going oh my fucking god just fucking break i gotta get to work but like he kind of figures that out a little bit at the end there where it's like oh here's a little bit of dose of reality it's very cold Mm -hmm. it is it's it's so much colder than people realize the car harmony and i drive and by that i mean harmony drives 99.9% 99.9% of the no, time. No, you're a passenger princess. <laughs> um, I mean, it is my car. I just don't drive it because I have an astigmatism <laughs> and everyone has really bright headlights out here. Uh, but it has remote start from living in the Midwest and needing to have remote start to get the car started at five in the morning when it's frozen and uh, having to thaw your car out. And there have been multiple occasions where friends have seen us like turn the car on from like a block down and they're like, why would you even need that? And I'm like, I need you to understand what winter is like in the Midwest <laughs> next to a lake. Do you know what lake effect is? It's hell. <laughs> a lot of people don't know what lake effect is, but also it ends up being very useful in hot Los Angeles summers. That's true. You can turn the air on. You get in the car and it's already nice. Mm. Ooh, fancy, bougie in our 2012. <laughs> Ooh. You know, since we're talking about vehicles, we should talk about the bike, yes? Yes, oh, we course. gotta. We gotta. What do you gotta say about this bike? It is, again, going with my fairy tale uh, analogy, it is the steed. It's the it's the magical horse, the, the vehicle that, you know, is the elite, uh, ha, ha, above all, uh, this Honda Elite scooter that Binks is so in love with. And, of course, I mean, it's, it's so important to the narrative of the movie that it's the very first shot of the movie of this uh, scooter in its garage and, you know, how beautiful it looks and how well kept it is. It is obviously, you know, this poor family's prized possession. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember. Did they say – did he save up to buy it? Was it a gift, it was a gift from the father, no, right? No, it was uh, his dad, I think, 
died or something and then oh right left, in the left inheritance. insurance yes, money I think. insurance money okay so yeah so it is in that way it's a representative of the missing the absentee father uh and of course it's trashing is you know metaphorical in that way of you know this idealized version this magical version that binks has in his head of his life then coming in the crashing reality of like no you live in a trailer you live, you know, with your mom who's still having to date to try and, you know, get some bread on the table. Mm-hmm. You're, you know, you're you're still in this kind of you know, shitty ass town that you're not going to escape from. And you're never going to get to Vermont. Um, and I I do think that, you know, in terms of I, I'm putting I know I'm putting a lot of thoughts down here, but like both this bike is kind of this movie's, you know, rosebud <laughs> of, you know, this central thing this object that of course you know nobody else gives a crap about but you know the central characters love mm. or have this reverence for and you know so much of the argument uh is about money for this bike and um i also think that because we're dealing with a movie that takes place in a very uh heightened reality or or even kind of semi fairy tale reality um it's interesting that this movie was uh followed not officially of course but the very next year there was 1986's the wraith which mm-hmm. feels very akin to this movie in terms of its tone and in terms of its treatment of youth culture relating to vehicles <laughs> and uh, bikes in particular, but also cars and uh, and how, you know, there's this kind of insular reality around these vehicles that are in these small towns uh, that are kind of out, off the beaten path. I mean, and if we're if we're going to talk about cars and youth culture, the fact that Keith Gordon is here as Lloyd uh, and that man, Ooh, he nice. he loves a car more than anyone in film has ever loved one might even say he is a car (laughs) he is a car um (laughs) um i have to just put this on the record harmony has heard me talk about this because we recently watched dress to kill for something that we'll get to announce at a later date um i hate how like weirdly obsessed i am with keith gordon in the 80s there's something so weird about him and yet so Attractive He's that a charming I, little boy, you know. Like I can't like process cute, like, my feelings about it. Kid, whatever. Well, and I had a similar feeling about Dominic Sisa from The Holdovers, um, who plays Angus in The Holdovers. I was like, oh, you have Keith Gordon energy. I like this. Ooh, and I was yes. like, what's wrong with me? Why do I like this character so much? And I think it's because I just I really love Christine. Like Christine's one of my I, favorite. I think movies. you also just grew up around a lot of kids like this I did there there's something very familiar about him and I love that this is the guy that is the love interest for Billie Jean because like theoretically he shouldn't be like Keith Gordon is kind of weird looking that's part of his appeal is that he doesn't look like you know your traditional like romantic lead so the fact that Billie Jean is into him and like genuinely into him I think is really cool like I think that that's Mm -hmm. I I buy it I, I like that um but something I wanted to look back on what we're talking about the scooter is like the the big thing is the $608 it's you know $608 to repair this scooter and like there's obviously more layers to that there's also the fact that like they beat the shit out of Banks there's also the fact that Pyatt tried to sexually assault Billie Jean like there's a lot more to this but the, the like the the laser focus is the $608 so with inflation this is closer to about $1700 in 2023 Ooh. money which is like that is a $1700 is not a lot of money to have, but a lot of money to lose. Um, mm. And especially, especially that- Especially when you're 15. Especially oh, when you're yeah. 15, especially when you're living in a trailer. Like that is so much money. And so to, 
like it, that that context I think is really important because when you think about this movie, it's like, oh, it's like $600. It doesn't sound like the end of the world, but it, yes, it's the principle of the fact, but also this is legitimately like, like the, the, the quote of, you know, every person or 90% of the people in America are like one medical emergency away of like being homeless. Like mm -hmm. that it's that level of money of losing is a problem. Oh yeah. Um, like that's, that's a thing that I, whenever I, you know, when I watched the VH1 thing or whenever I was reading reviews of this, that's the sticking point that a lot of people had though. It's just like, I mean, it's only like $608. Like it's not that big of a deal. Like it's weird that you can like crux an entire revolution on the concept of like a small amount of money like this. And it's like, no, it's not about the money. It's about the principle of the matter. Like they offer to give her like the money, like the radio station raises more than enough money to replace it at one point. And no, it's about this one guy having to pay that kind of money. Y'all are going to shoot me, but I really want to bring up one of my favorite Kids in the Hall sketches right now, which is where Bruce McCullough is at a restaurant, and he wants his bill, and the waiters are slow with bringing the bill, and when they finally bring the bill, his entire bit is, no, I wanted my bill five minutes ago. You're not listening to me. <laughs> and it just goes on this tirade about wanting, and they can't give him what he wants because what he wants is impossible for him to get Yeah, because he just wanted it five minutes ago. And so that's what this $608 becomes in the movie, which is initially it is very much the principle of the thing. And then it becomes so much bigger than the principle of the thing that there is no squaring that circle. There is no making it right. Because as you were just saying, Harmony, all these heart talking heads and I love the eighties were like, I'll just give you the $608 and then we'll just move on. All right. Just get over it, dude, you mm -hmm. know, whatever. And, Again, that's that's you know, because what Billy Jean is fighting, what Bing, you know, what Binks is trying to, to do, what all the Billy Jean gang are trying to do, but really Billy Jean herself is, you know, attack this systemic problem in the world that can't be solved. You know, that can't mm -hmm. go away, and you know, it, it can be heightened, it can be exploded, it can be blown out of proportion, it can create an entire series of ridiculous circumstances, it can get your brother shot, uh, and yet. You know, there's no making it right, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I like, think I think that shift happens during like the mall face-off because at that yeah. point it's very much like I'm just gonna take this money. We're gonna it's gonna be a thing. But he he has to open his fucking mouth. And Pi's like, you would have loved it. And it's like, all right, bitch, that's the game you're gonna play. We're done. And then like, she just keeps kneeing dudes in the jump. <laughs> yeah, like, that window is closed. We're this is a whole new thing now, and this is all your fault. We could have played nice. You forced my hand. Eat yep. shit. Like, I it, love that energy so much. <laughs> and we know, the Billie Jean doesn't know, but we know that this is already a falsified meeting because, mm -hmm. you know, the detective is the one putting up the money. And it's a very nice gesture on his part. And, you know, Lieutenant Ringwald's trying to do the right thing here. Mm -hmm. But even the fact that he's done that means that the problem is still a problem. Yes. You know? Yes. The, 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 he's he's both sidesing it a little bit where it's like clearly he recognizes who like the real shithead is in this situation, but he's still not really he, he can't do anything about it. Um, mm. I also think that like when you undermine this down to like a like a, you know, a, a physical dollar amount that like people seem to regard as like not that much, even though I love would love to have just six hundred eight dollars. Just someone's like, here you go. I'm like, oh, my God, this is going to make my month. Um <laughs> I think the thing that you people are kind of glazing over when they really just focus on that is no, but they're also dealing with the fact that like they shot a guy and they've been running on the lamb and they're also being framed for like a lot of other crimes they have nothing to do with. Like 
there's more in line. There's there's more at stake than just that because it's not like oh we just take the money and then it's done. No, like then then the law gets involved. Like this is so much bigger stakes than just a dollar amount. Mm-hmm. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. I'm Billie Jean Davy, and I want to set the record straight. I'm not a liar. I'm not a thief, and neither is my brother. Hello, mom. Sorry, that is him. Mom. I don't know when we'll be coming home, but we love you. I know people are making up stories about us. Don't you believe them? As for you, Mr. Pyatt, you are so sleazy. You think that you can do anything you want and then lie about it, and we just have to take it, because what are we? Just a bunch of kids. Well, not this time. From now on, we're doing this our way. Lying, no cheating, fair is fair. All right. $608 for the scooter your son trashed. That's what you owe, and we're not turning ourselves in till we get it. Fair is fair. We didn't start this, we didn't mean it to happen, but we're not giving up till you pay. Fair is fair. So as this is going on, we talked about it a little bit at the beginning, but I think we should definitely dive into the idea of Billie Jean as the symbol and what she represents. And what I find fascinating is the people that are like, this seems so unbelievable, you know, in the 80s, maybe. Today, this is so believable to me. This is so incredibly common. Like how frequently does it happen where somebody becomes like the main character of the day on the internet for a good reason and then they live on as like another symbol like we use their face as a reaction meme and everybody knows exactly what it what that means like what the energy of that is bringing hell like we do that with animals all the time like the rally possum you know the the (laughs) possum that showed up in the middle of an nfl game and everyone's like let him play and you know doing whatever things i mean just think about that guy with the ponytail who was just like, you can do both. Yeah, that's like, like the recent example for sure. Everyone was just like, oh, my God, I'm going to use this guy as a folk hero anytime I say, like, it's not either or. Like, it's it's so easy for this to just get around. It just needs, like, the exposure and, like, the ideals that people place on it. Absolutely. Like, we make you know, quote unquote, folk heroes out of people all the time. Um, It tends to be a smaller window because that's just the way that cultural and our cultural sharing moves these days (laughs) because of the internet. But even looking at things cinematically, how is Billie Jean not just Katniss Everdeen? Like Mm. it's this, it's the same sort of trajectory of what you believe in and what you stand for, yes, is important, but what you represent is infinitely more important. And we have to protect what you represent above mm-hmm. all else. And we're also going to commodify what you represent to you know, serve our own interests because that's a thing that starts happening. Like there are definitely the people that are into what Billie Jean stands for because they genuinely believe in it. That's when we start getting people cutting their hair, wearing the the one singular earring because they do believe in it. It's very fabulous stains in that way. But then of course, as we see towards the end, you know, Pyatt, the person who has done the most harm to her in all of this, is now profiting off of her likeness and being a fucking weirdo selling like these pictures of her in her bathing suit when she's really young because he's a mm-hmm. fucking weirdo. And, he's such a creep. And this is going to get like kind of heavy, but you know, it's the closest thing I can think of. How is what he's doing any different than George Zimmerman selling signed packages of Skittles or like the art that yeah. he makes? Like it is. Like this movie is so within the realm of possibility for me because of what we've seen 
actually play out in real life that I I would really love to talk to the people who reviewed it when it came out to be like, how do you feel about this movie now that we've seen this really fucking happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, one of the strongest images I feel in this movie is, uh, I, I mean, I believe in 1985, we'd already had Che Guevara merch, right? Yes, I think yeah. so. And I, I really think that's what, what, you know, they were thinking of when they were making all the Billie Jean merch here in terms of how, at what point does a symbol cease to have any meaning, you know, where it's literally just its own perpetuated symbol going forward over and over of, you know, it's a t-shirt, it's a poster, it's a button, you know, whatever it is. And I think one of the, the most interesting things and, and I think impressive things about the movie is that in a lesser movie, uh, which is not to say bad, but just lesser than what this is, it would be a narrative of Billie Jean becoming a folk hero and becoming a symbol and then embracing that symbol and being like, no, that is who I am now. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm a superhero. I'm going to go town to town and solve these problems because that's what, you know, that's what life has given me and that's what God has told me to do. Kind of Joan of Arc-y, right? And... I think it's impressive that Billie Jean refuses that at every turn. And that's what kind of not to spoil everything, but Hey, that's what the ending's about, you know, where it's like, I'm rejecting my own image because mm-hmm. it's like, that's not me. And it never was. Burn it all down. Burn yeah, it all down. Burn it all like, down. And like, speaking of like this dude being a scumbag though, like he even has like a, he makes a giant statue that doesn't look that good because he doesn't respect her <laughs> enough to spend yeah, money on yeah. a decent statue apparently. Um, but he also like displays the shirt, like being like, "This is the shirt I was wearing when I got shot." And here's arrows oh, pointing the arrows to the blood. To the bullet hole. I'm like, "Jeez, dude!" Like, aside from just the everything you're doing, like you are the biggest fucking scumbag who's still pretending like you're the victim. Yeah, I hate him. He, like, he's the sleaziest. He's yeah. just the sleaziest. He gets that go said, home heat from me. <laughs> I do love the the frisbee with all the guns around it because it looks sick, and I love that design. yeah there's there's some real good merch designs in here and of course like owning that merch defeats you know the purpose of the movie of burning it down and i do think it's a very powerful visual where she's looking down at the fire and you just get the people taking their shirts off and being like oh man i participated in this Mm -hmm. damn it no yeah no you're right let me take this off like I think that that's that's a really really powerful visual. Even though like the horrible capitalist part of my brain is like, oh, but I want that shirt. I oh want yeah, it. it's a it's <laughs> such a it's such a tension. And I gotta wonder if Robin's you know personal friend of George Lucas was doing a little dig here mm-hmm. at Mr. Lucas, mm-hmm. you know, of like, <laughs> hey, thanks for all the commercialism trends that you've started with movies, buddy. Yep. Yeah, for real. <laughs> Look at this—you've commodified a war and a revolution for your franchise. Yeah, but neat toys those toys are great here's the thing i loved i love them they were my favorite toys as a kid and granted my parents didn't buy me cool star wars characters they'd be like look it's the guy in the cantina who gets his arm cut off he was the cheapest you get him (laughs) (laughs) oh you would have gotten booster if this was a jingle all the way universe oh i would have gotten like eight different boosters (laughs) we'd be like here you want a gonk droid i'm like not really but okay I don't know, like, just, this movie's just fucking so cool with how how it handles all of its things at all of the appropriate turns. Like, it's it's morally stayed in the right all these years later, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. As as y'all are still saying, it it, it remains relevant for all of these reasons and more. Uh, And the fact that they're just, I think as soon as you have a, a story or a piece of art that's challenging social norms, you know, political norms, uh, systemic norms, 
you're never going to have a true resolution resolution because there can't be. And I mm-hmm. think it's brave of a movie like this to, yeah, there is a resolution in terms of burn it all down and move to Vermont. <laughs> but uh, it's it's not obviously a settling of any of these larger issues and it doesn't pretend to be. Oh, yeah. And like, I'm just thinking about this right now, like in terms of what this could have been. And like there, there's a lot of ways they could have made small changes that would have had like big overall implications of how the movie plays out. Um, like the hair being shorter or having more intense Bowie style makeup. It's like, no, like at the end of the day, if like you want to be a symbol, you want to have your I am Spartacus kind of moments. It's like cutting your hair is free. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to get caught up in consumerism in order to cut your hair. Yeah, you don't have to buy a specific haircutting device to <laughs> yeah. to do this. Exactly. So like I think that that's a much more like DIY symbol of this than any t-shirt or anything else could have been and I think that just it not being so high glam is the appropriate thing of it and I I think that just kind of speaks for the whole movie like there's a lot of scrappiness with this film there's a lot of uh it it feels so much like the underdog film like we said at the very beginning of the episode and I think that that's plays perfectly to what it is definitely I mean and what is more defiant for a woman to do than to strip the easiest, most identifiable symbol of femininity and gender roles of of hair? Like, obviously, we live in a world of nuance. You, you are your femininity is not defined by the length of your hair. That is, mm-hmm. you know, that's a very archaic way of looking at things. But to act as if that is not the pervasive narrative socially in our current, you know patriarchal world that's just incorrect it is unfortunately um and like i i mean even just thinking about this in terms of how she's being digested by the other like teens and youth in this movie like all of the women want to be her because she looks cool and because they like what she stands for so many of the dudes are like billy jean's hot and Mm -hmm. at the end even the dudes are like taking their shirts off being like okay there's there's more to this than just me thinking she's hot Mm mm-hmm you know, we didn't re- uh, we didn't really uh, discuss Hubie, and I think Hubie's an interesting, really interesting character in the sense because he's a stock '80s blonde bad guy mm-hmm. in the teen movie. He's mm-hmm. William Zabka and the Karate Kid, right? Mm-hmm. And yet, besides the off-screen trashing of the scooter, the off-screen beating of of Banks, uh, which I think is kind of indicative that they're both off-screen, um, he's just there to get kneed in the balls a lot, uh, and then at the very end, you know, kind of understand that his dad is a piece of shit. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like it's actually kind of impressive that, you know, he's positioned as this, you know, garbage person, garbage archetypal, you know, villainous character. And yet even he has a little bit more under the surface. Yeah. And I think that that's also a very important part of coming of age that we don't often see in teen movies of the, of this character of the, you know, the, the Billy Zabka character of, you know, the the blonde guy from the more privileged family with the wealth, with the power, recognizing that they are the baddies. Like mm-hmm. that realization for a lot of the people, as we've seen throughout history, never happens or it does happen and they don't care where they do know that they're the baddies and they're just like, well, that's the, that's just the way that life ended up and sucks to, to not be me, I guess. And mm-hmm. Seeing him have that understanding and have that evolution of like, wait, 
my dad is not in the right here. That's a big deal. Like it's a very Mm. big deal when you're a kid or a teenager, whatever it happens for you, when you realize your parents are fallible, when you Mm -hmm. realize your parents make bad decisions, when, you know, because it, it, it's a, it's a rocking of your worldview of like, okay, well, if I know that they're wrong in this situation, what else are they wrong about? What else have they taught me over these years that I should be questioning? Like it's a existential mind fuck when that happens. Um, and so to see this movie plant those seeds, I think is really important. And I think is very important for a lot of people to see because we know, look, cause we have a good moral compass. I like to think despite, you know, I think we're all kind of debaucherous people, but mm-hmm. We have at least have the moral compass enough to know that like Pyatt fucking blows like he sucks. He's a bad guy. But uh-huh. if you've been raised in that household where everything that you've been taught is like, you know, this is how we do things and I'm your father and you listen and I'm, you know, whatever, whatever. Having that shaken, that's uh, that's a tough thing. That's a tough thing to go through. Oh, yeah, like the um the, the line from this movie is, you know, fair is fair, but, like, the line that precedes it is all about how, like, we didn't start this. And, mm-hmm. like, teens and kids don't start the problems. Like, the problem starts with, like, the shitty dude in your small town who happens to have money. <laughs> he, he's you, the you one who say starts that they this. didn't start the fire. Ah. Ah. So, like, actually, the but parallel... But it was always burning. Ah, the parallel I'm thinking of right now is um, in Rambo 1 when, you know, Stallone is cry-screaming through oh, the end of that movie yeah. where it's like, we just start this war. And then come out this year is when Rambo 2 comes out and Rambo 2 is awesome, but also, like, fuck Rambo 2 because it undermines everything about Rambo 1 in the sake of, like, commercialism and money and a cartoon so- show. Um, you said the cartoon like show. That. You said the cartoon show. It's the rule of the Listen, pod. I, I love the Rambo cartoon. Rambo. Thank you. I love the Rambo cartoon. It's terrible. That's why I like it. <laughs> yeah, for those of this is your first time uh, listening to this episode, anytime Harmony mentions the Rambo cartoon, I make her say Rambo like that because it makes me laugh. <laughs> it's the, it's it's how great. the intro music it's works. It's a, it's a very ripoff G.I. Joe, um, but it's dumber, so <laughs> I kind of like it more. Uh, but it's that's that's the parallel you're looking at with this, where it's like Rambo 1, which had something to say, versus Rambo 2, which is like, uh, whatever. Like, I mean, you, it looks cool. It, it does look cool. I'm not saying it's badly made. I'm just saying like that gives into the whole commercialism of the eighties. Mm-hmm. No, you're absolutely right. You're, you're absolutely right about that. Um, so something that I want to kind of end things on talking about is the implicit queerness that exists around a figure like Billie Jean and mm-hmm. why this movie coming out the same year as just one of the guys, another film about, you know, a woman cutting her hair off and kind of taking on this more masculine role a lot more, you know, directly in that one versus this one. Uh, because this movie is extremely popular with the girls, the gays and the theys um, very much. So that is kind of the, the, the cult's, group that has kept this film alive and relevant throughout all Mm -hmm. of these years. Um, But Bill, last I checked, you are none of those things. Um, So I would love to hear from you, like, what is it about this movie that speaks to you? It's so much of all we've already said and more. It's the fact that there is a real punk new wave mentality about it as harmony mentioned and that I really respond to because it is that post sixties, post seventies 
you know, the wool has been pulled from our eyes and, and now we have to wake up to this weird morning in America that, you know, we're in the midst of this Reaganite bullshit uh, that, you know, what is this land that we live in and can it ever be changed? Is it just the same old, same old that's ever going to stop? And I think what's inspiring is the the ability of just questioning all these, you know, norms, whether it be in gender or sexuality or society or, you know, uh 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 sociality these some of these aren't words uh but uh it's something that really motivates me personally to see a movie like this wrestling with these things in an honest way i feel it in a way that's not purporting to say well here is the actual answer and congratulations go by the soundtrack um it feels genuinely uh, if not revolutionary, then uh, instigating. And I think that's really impressive for what is, you know, what was probably advertised and pitched as, oh, just a teen adventure on the land movie. Bill, I think that is beautiful. That is a lovely encapsulation of this movie. But there is one major element that we have not talked about that I think is the perfect note to go out on. We got to talk about Invincible. <laughs> yes. Yes. All right. Let take take me to church, Bill. How do you feel about Pat this song? Pat Benatar. Okay, so Pat Benatar, one of my favorite artists, especially of this era, because obviously she's coming out of like this Joan Jetty kind of runaways, you know, vibe of, you know, the seventies and punk and uh there's this new wave, you know, movement that's already happening. But she really, I feel knew how to use her image for this MTV generation that was burgeoning, you know, that had already started. And, you know, Love is a Battlefield, what a mission statement of a pop song, you know, in terms of like putting together a track that like is both ebullient and it 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 feels like it's trying to give you like a fun love song, but at the same time really challenge some norms that, you know, maybe weren't thought about in pop music, you know, up to that point, uh, especially for, you know, uh, for women artists. And Invincible feels like the next step after Love is a Battlefield to me, where obviously um, it was written by the same people, or at least one of the same people, Holly Knight, uh, who also wrote, co-wrote Love is a Battlefield, and Simon Climey. And uh, it was uh, produced by uh, Mike Chapman, who had done tracks for uh, Blondie and The Knack. Uh, so, you know, he was a little bit of a hit maker in that way. Um, just I every time I hear this, not only is the lyric, as you were uh, talking about at the beginning of the show, BJ, with your take back the night uh, story, the lyric is very deliberately, you know, obviously it's based off the film and it's, you know, just kind of going through the biggest emotions of the character of Billie Jean and, and you know, her her quest. So it has that already built in revolutionary spirit to it. But the way that the drums interact with the bass line uh, and the structure of the song too, first chorus first it feels very Durant Durant to me in a way, which has had that new romantic, new wave kind of vibe to it mm -hmm. in the sense that when you're listening to the song, your ear doesn't necessarily know where it's going next. Those drum fills really do seem to come in kind of suddenly the first time you hear it, where it's like, oh, I didn't expect a drum fill there. And yet I think that's part and parcel of why this song works so well for this movie is the fact that it it's giving you a very commercial sound. It's giving you a very pop sound. And yet it's giving you something kind of new that you weren't expecting that's hidden in the song. And yet afterwards, you're just addicted to it. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. Like, Pat Benatar's never been somebody who's, like, been steering away from, like, messaging in songs. Like, she did Hell is for Children, like, years before this, um, which is much more, like, 
raw and like a gnarly rock song versus this, which is like, oh, no, we're getting into like the slick 80s where we we like even just going from like early 80s to now, like production has come a long way and we have gotten very stylish and we haven't gotten to the point where we're overproducing things and sucking all the soul out of it yet. It just sounds like like really pristine, like shiny new wave. And this is so good. Um, I don't remember correctly, but I believe this is one of Pat Benatar's last big hits before she starts. She stops consistently having them. And that is a shame, mm-hmm. but that's just like the changing of times. Like there's not a lot of people from the early eighties who continue to have hits into the late eighties just cause a lot of things changed, but, but Benatar is so fucking cool. And she's always <laughs> been so cool. And this is like, not one of those songs where it's just a needle drop. Like it, when it says it's the theme of the legend of Billie Jean, like they mean it cause it is throughout mm-hmm. like the entire movie. Yes. The line that I feel like is just carved onto my chest is we can't afford to be innocent. Like there's so many great lines in this song, but that's the one Mm. for me where it's like, you know, I joke a lot that I was born Midwest trash and I will die Midwest trash. But like there is something that people seldom remember, which is that like being able to be innocent and to be like squeaky clean is a privilege because a lot of us don't have that luxury. A lot of us have to be a little bit scrappier. Have I stolen food before? Yeah, because otherwise I wouldn't get to eat. So it's like mm-hmm. there, there's a different world that a lot of us operate within where this idea of good has a little bit of a gray area. There's a little bit of an asterisk around it because we can't afford to be innocent. And I like that just hits me like in my core and fills my whole being and you know obviously it's like yes this is a do or die situation yes this is also kind of like a pump up jam but that line like that to me I think is at the the soul of the legend of Billie Jean and like mm-hmm. what they're standing for what they're fighting for what is going on why she doesn't want to be a symbol because again like so even some of the people who co-opt her image like they don't know what this is like They don't know what it's like to deal with what she goes through. They can actually afford to buy the merch of her. Could Mm -hmm. they? Probably not. Um, And she sure as fuck isn't getting any money from it. Not that she would take Mm. it anyway. But like there's something about that line that just, ooh, chef's kiss. Such like she literally beautiful. can't afford. Yes, like yeah, you literally, like yeah. you literally can't afford to be innocent. Like you, you can't. And yeah. it's just, it's poetry. It's poetry in motion. I love what it. Is, uh, what does Mindy Kaling say about Wrecking Ball and Night Before? You can cry to it. You can run to it. <laughs> you, <laughs> can, you could, you could be at the gym and this is this slaps. You could be at the club and this slaps. You could be in your home alone and you know just really feel the weight of the world on your shoulders and it slaps. Like it is an all-purpose tune. And it, yeah, it's so good. Absolutely. Would like I immediately go feral in the dance, like on the dance floor if the song played? Absolutely. Will I also listen to this song, like staring in the mirror and crying and being like, yeah, of course, of course. It yeah. it, it serves it serves many purposes. Uh, 
yeah, the song rules. The song Coinc- rules, this movie rules, all of you rule. That's how I feel. Yeah. Coincidentally, the same day we watched this, we also picked a, a movie off the shelf that BJ had just bought that has been on my watch list forever, and it's called Shame. It's from 1988. It's this Australian, like, super deep cut uh, revenge movie. And one of the interactions that BJ and I were, like, watching this movie and just going, oh, fuck, is when this, like, lawyer who rides a motorcycle and rolls into town is talking to this girl who was uh, assaulted. And this girl asks, like, so do you come from money? And she goes, well, I mean, I, I kind of do all right. Like, I, you know, I don't have a ton of money, but, like, I'm fine. And she goes, yeah, you just seem like you've never had to, like, worry about things like walking around late at night. Because mm-hmm. she just does it haphazardly. And I'm like, oh, no, that's. That's that's this kind of this movie where it's like, yeah, you know what? When you're in a trailer park and at night and, and you know, there's a lot of things you got to worry about. You there's things that you can uh, af- afford to not worry about when you got a little bit more money, a little bit more power. And like that's uh, mm-hmm. that kind of concept in this what is a very bleak Australian film is encapsulated for like a much younger generation in this one just as a whole concept. It's so fucking like this is one of those movies that I wish I saw when I was like 14 because I'd be like, this is one of the best movies I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> you're totally right <laughs> and you know what it's one of the best movies i've ever seen in my 30s so i'm i'm happy that we got to finally talk about it well harmony the time has come the legend of billy jean is asking you to the prom is it a yes a no a maybe or are you buying her ticket so she can go on her own this is a, a big texas size 10 good buddy because <laughs> we're I in Texas, get it? We are in Texas. Yeah, <laughs> honestly, we are in Texas, was... so you can quote a Canadian show. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> honestly, I thought this movie was in Florida. It gave like Florida Florida Project vibes. I kind of was thought it was there until we found out we were in Texas. I'm like, oh, that makes sense too. Um, yeah. No, like we've been heaping nothing but praise on this movie, and it's great. And I have nothing additional to say about that that we haven't already said better. And by we, I mean mostly you and Bill. <laughs> well, and Bill, thank you so much for joining us and wanting to talk about this movie and talking about it so eloquently and bringing such wonderful insight. Uh, where can people find you on the internet to find out, you know, more about you, what you do, and your work? Uh, you can find me on all socials at Bill Bria, um, and you can also find me at Slash Film uh, Bill Bria, uh, working with the wonderful BJ. And just thank you all for having me. This was such a pleasure, and uh, I'm honored. Uh, if you happen to do a spinoff podcast called BJ and Co, uh, I would like to write the theme song. Oh, beautiful. I love it. <laughs> it sounds great. And because we do have a lot of horror listeners um, who have found us through horror, uh, Bill also has a horror podcast. You want to shout that oh, out? Oh, yes. Yeah, it's it's Bill and Ashley's Terror Theater. Uh, we're part of the Stranded Panda Network. Uh, and so you can find us uh, through Facebook on the Stranded Panda fa- pages as well as we're on uh, X. Ugh. Twitter, uh, bat pod, B-A-T-T-P-O-D. Uh, we're on all you know major uh, platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Uh, so check us out. We do um, a movie, uh, uh, an episode similar to The Sands of Prom, uh, talking about the classics, uh, new and old, of horror movies. And uh, we're definitely going to have y'all on very soon, oh, hopefully this year. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is news to me. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> cross-pollination baby (laughs) (laughs) and as always you can find the show on twitter instagram and blue sky at the sunset prom you can follow me on twitter instagram blue sky tiktok at bj colangelo and you can follow me on twitter and instagram at velocitraptor or on blue sky at harmony colangelo and as always thank you to the sonderbombs for allowing us to use title as our theme song harmony what band 
is getting the prestigious honor of being recommended on The Legend of Billie Jean. I think uh, I, w- I was going for someone who's heavy but can be catchy and also can pump up, can, can pump you up, but also say like, fuck this world and all the people who do bullshit in it. <laughs> so the band I'm shouting at this time is uh, Pleasure Venom. They are this really gnarly Afropunk band. Um, uh, they'd released an album, I was going to say last year, it's two years ago now because it's 2024, called uh, Rebirth and Return. It's super good. I I just love like feeling pissed off. And it, I, I like songs that are justifiably pissed off. And this is like full of all of those. Um, yeah, like I just, I, I got into this band through a song they have called Death like years and years ago. But I just... I don't know. I was waiting for the right time to plug them. I needed I needed something with a little bit more righteous anger, and this is a good movie for that. So uh, go ahead and listen to either of the albums they have out, um, and there you go. Like, BJ, you, I, I made you listen to them for a hot sec before we sat down to record. What do you think? Oh, yeah, they rip. Uh, and righteous anger is definitely a great way to put it. So I also heartily recommend Pleasure Venom. Sick. All righty. And on that note, that takes us out. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week. And as always, save that last dance for us. Okay, bye. Bye. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.